us pray. Holy God, may we behold you and worship you where we are. Amen. There's a lot of conversation going on now in the church at large about the date of Easter and whether or not we will be able to worship together, physically gathered in one place. Even the president had a comment to make about churches and Easter services. It does appear, however, that based on good practice and recommendations from health professionals, we will not be able to gather together to worship and mark a holy week physically in the same place. A lot of conversation about that. And with our own topic here at Grace, this Lent called Relent, which is about renewing our calling to care for creation in a spiritual and practical way, putting those two things together, I've been thinking a lot about a book. It's called An Altar in the World, and it's written by Barbara Brown Taylor, who's an Episcopal priest and often thought of as one of the top 10 preachers in the world. She has in her opening chapter some beautiful words about our calling from God and our gift from God to worship where we are, worshiping in the house of God, which often looks unlike a church building, and worshiping and noticing and waking up to God, as she calls it, our place in this grand creation. I want to read for you a few parts of that first chapter. She begins by talking about her trip to Hawaii and what a beautiful and meaningful place that was to her. She said she ended up after walking around in a small tidal pool on the far southwestern tip of the island. After the crashing of the waves, the sanctuary of the still pool hit me with the sound of sheer silence. The calm water lay so green and cool before me that it calmed me too. Nothing stirred the face of the water, save the breeze coming off the ocean, which caused it to wrinkle from time to time. Walking around the pool, I came to three stones set upright near the edge where the water was deepest. All three were shaped like fat baguettes with the tallest one in the middle. The other two were set snug up against it, the same gray color as humpbacked whales. Altogether, they announced that something significant had happened in that place. I was not the first person to be affected by it. Whoever had come before me had set up an altar, and though I might never know that person, what that person had encountered there, I knew the name of the place, Bethel, house of God. At least that is what Jacob called the place when he encountered God, not on a gorgeous island in Hawaii, but in a rocky wilderness where he saw something that changed his life forever. The first time I read Jacob's story in the Bible, I knew it was true whether it ever happened or not. There he was, still a young man running away from home because his whole screwy family had finally imploded. His father was dying. He and his twin brother Esau had both wanted their father's blessing. Jacob's mother had colluded with him to get it, and though his scheme worked, it enraged his brother to the point that Jacob fled for his life. 
he and his brother were not identical twins, Esau could have squashed him like a bug. So Jacob left with little more than the clothes on his back, and when he had walked as far as he could, he looked around for a stone he could use for a pillow. When he had found one the right size, Jacob lay down to sleep, turning his cheek against the stone that was still warm from the sun. Maybe the dream was in the stone, or maybe it fell out of the sky. Wherever the dream came from, it was vivid, a ladder set up on the earth, with the top of it reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending it like bright winged ants. Then all of a sudden God was there beside Jacob without a single trumpet for warning, promising him safety, children, land. Remember, I am with you, God said to him. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Jacob woke while God's breath was still stirring the air, although he saw nothing out of the ordinary around him. Same wilderness, same rock, same sand. If someone had held a mirror in front of his face, Jacob would not have seen anything different there either, except for the circles of surprise in his eyes. Surely the Lord is in this place, he said out loud, and I did not know it. Shaken by what he had seen, he could not seem to stop talking. How awesome is this place, he went on. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. It was one of those dreams he could not have made up. It was one of those dreams that is so much more real than what ordinarily passes for real, that trying to figure out what really happened involves a complete redefinition of terms. What is really real? How do you know? Can you prove it? Even if Jacob could never find the exact place where the feet of that heavenly ladder came to earth, even if he could never find a single angel footprint in the sand, his life was changed for good. Having woken up to God, he would never be able to go to sleep again, at least not to the divine presence that had promised to be with him, whether he could see it or not. What really happened? God knows. All Jacob knew was that he had to mark that spot. Looking around for something that would do the trick, he spotted the obvious choice, his stone pillow, lying right where he had left it, although the sand around it was churned up from his unusual night's sleep. First he dug a sturdy footing for the stone. Then he stood it up ladder-like and set it into place. Then he poured oil on it and gave it a name. Bethel, house of God. Looking back at it as he walked away, he saw a stone finger rooted in the earth pointing straight up through the sky. Sitting in my salty, fragrant church back on the big island of Hawaii, I looked at the three stones pointing straight up through the sky and wondered how I had forgotten that the whole world is the house of God. Who had persuaded me that God preferred four walls and a roof to open wide spaces? When had I made the subtle switch myself, becoming convinced that church bodies and buildings were the safest and most reliable places to encounter the living God? Somewhere along the line, we bought or were sold the idea that God is chiefly interested in religion. We believed that God's home was the church, that God's people knew who they were, and that the world was a barren place, full of lost souls in need of all the help they could get. Plenty of us seized on those ideas because they offered us meaning. 
Believing them gave us purpose and worth. They gave us something noble to do in the midst of lives that might otherwise be invisible. Plus, there really are large swaths of the world filled with people in deep need of saving. The problem is many of the people in need of saving are in the churches. And at least part of what they need saving from is the idea that God sees the world the same way they do. What if the gravel of a parking lot looks as promising to God as the floorboards of a church? What if a lost soul strikes God as more reachable than a lifelong believer? What if God can drop, drop a ladder absolutely anywhere with no regard for the religious standards developed by those who have made it their business to know the way to God? I could not possibly say, she writes. Then she goes on to talk about the story of Jacob again. When the words came out of Jacob's mouth, surely the Lord is present in this place and I did not know it. There was no temple in Jerusalem. Without one designated place to make their offerings, people were free to see the whole world as an altar. The divine could erupt anywhere and when it did, they marked the spot in any way they could although there was no sense hanging around for long since God stayed on the move. For years and years, the divine presence was content with a tent, a tent of meeting, the Bible calls it, which was not where God lived full time, but where God camped out with people who were also on the move. God met them outside the tent too, but the tent was the face-to-face -face place, the place where the presence of God was so intense that Moses was the only person who could stand it. When Moses came out of the tent of meeting, his face was so bright that he wore a veil over it in order not to scare the children. The tent suited God just fine for hundreds of years. It suited God so well, in fact, that when King David proposed giving God a permanent address, God balked. Are you the one to build me a house to live in? God asked. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. So David did not build God a temple. His son Solomon did, however, and from that day forth God's address was Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Even today, two ruined temples later, people from around the world still go to Mount Zion to tuck their prayers into the foundation stones of God's old house. As important as it is to mark the places where we meet God, I worry about what happens when we do build a house for God. I am speaking no longer of the temple in Jerusalem, but of the house of worship on the corner where people of faith meet to say their prayers because saying them together reminds them of who they are better than saying them alone. This is good, and all good things cast shadows. Do we build God a house so that we can choose when to go see God? Do we build God a house in lieu of having God stay at ours? Plus, what happens to the rest of the world when we build four walls, even four gorgeous walls? Cap them with a steepled roof and designate that the house of God. What happens to the riverbanks, the mountaintops, the deserts, and the trees? What happens to the people who never show up in our houses of God? The people of God are not the only creatures capable of praising God. After all, there are also wolves and seals. There are also wild geese and humpback whales. According to the Bible, even trees can clap their hands. 
Francis of Assisi loved singing hymns with his brothers and sisters, who included not only Brother Bernard and Sister Claire, but also Brother Sun and Sister Moon. Francis could not have told you the difference between the sacred and the secular if you had twisted his arm behind his back. He read the world as reverently as he read the Bible. For him, a leper was as kissable as a bishop's ring, a single bird as much a messenger of God as a cloud full of angels. Francis had no discretion. He did not know where to draw the line between the church and the world. For this reason, among others, Francis is remembered as a saint. Fortunately, the Bible I set out to learn and love rewarded me with another way of approaching God, a way that trusts the union of spirit and flesh as much as it trusts the world to be a place of encounter with God. Like anyone else, I do some picking and choosing when I go to my holy book for proof that the world is holy too, but the evidence is there. People encounter God under shady oak trees, on river banks, at the tops of mountains, and in long stretches of barren wilderness. God shows up in whirlwinds, starry skies, burning bushes, and perfect strangers. When people want to know more about God, the Son of God tells them to pay attention to the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, to women kneading bread and workers lining up for their pay. Whoever wrote this stuff believed that people could learn as much about the ways of God from paying attention to the world as they could from paying attention to Scripture. What is true is what happens, even if what happens is not always right. People can learn as much about the ways of God from business deals gone bad or sparrows falling to the ground as they can from reciting the books of the Bible in order. They can learn as much from a love affair or a wildflower as they can from knowing the Ten Commandments by heart. This is wonderful news. I do not have to choose between the Sermon on the Mount and the beautiful magnolia trees. God can come to me by a still pool on the big island of Hawaii as well as at the altar of the Washington National Cathedral. The house of God stretches from one corner of the universe to the other. Sea monsters and ostriches live in it, along with people who pray in languages I do not speak, whose names I will never know. I want to close now with the last part of her chapter, where she often talks about practices, uh, ways you can practice the learnings that she has in the beginning of the chapter. So as she lived an experience of Jacob herself, what are her words of wisdom about how Now, in this time, we are all living as Jacob, finding the house of God to be the whole universe, to be our own backyard, to be our living rooms as we gather together or as we watch worship remotely or as we just sit outside and listen to the birds and remember who we are and whose we are. Listen to what she writes. I can set a little altar in the world or in my heart. I can stop what I am doing long enough to see where I am, who I am there with, and how awesome the place is. I can flag one more gate to heaven, one more patch of ordinary earth with ladder marks on it, where the divine traffic is heavy when I notice it, and even when I do not. I can see it for once instead of walking right past it, maybe even setting a stone or saying a blessing before I move on to where I am due next. Human beings may separate things into as many piles as we wish. 
separating spirit from flesh and sacred from secular, church from world. But we should not be surprised when God does not recognize the distinctions we make between the two. Earth is so thick with divine possibility that it is a wonder we can walk anywhere without cracking our shins on altars. Jacob's nowhere, about which he knew nothing, turned out to be the house of God. Even though his family had imploded, even though he had made his brother angry enough to kill him, even though he was a scoundrel from the word go, God decided to visit Jacob right where he was. Though Jacob had not been right about anything so far and never would be, God gave Jacob vision so Jacob could see the angels going up and down from earth to heaven, going about their business in the one and only world there is. The vision showed Jacob something he did not know. He slept in the house of God. He woke at the gate of heaven. None of this was his doing. The only thing he did right was to see where he was and say so. Then he turned his pillow into an altar before he set off, praising the God who had come to him where he was. Friends, May you hear today that you too sleep in the very house of God and you wake at the gate of heaven. God is with us wherever we are and God has come to stay among us. May those words bring you comfort and give you hope in these times. Amen. Amen.